0: Podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. You have your Bibles. Let's open them up to Daniel. We left off our last time together at the toward the end of chapter ten. So. We're going to pick it up at the end of chapter 10 and move into chapter 11 this morning, okay? The battles that happen here on earth, as we have been discovering and we are aware and been rem- being reminded through Daniel, the battles that happen here on earth, along with the wars and rumors of wars that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24, are very much indicative of the battles being fought in the heavenlies. In fact, you could actually say wars happen here on earth because of the spiritual war that rages in the unseen spiritual realm. We can know for sure that the spirit realm is real just by taking a look around at past history, taking a look around at present activity in our world. In our last time together, we saw in verse 1 of chapter 10 that Daniel was given a message that was true and that it concerned a great war. I believe two things are in view. At least two things are in view with regards to this great war. Obviously, the last and great war known as the Battle of Armageddon would be in view. And, of course, the ongoing spiritual battles that we incur on a regular, daily basis. We refer to it as spiritual warfare. The enemy comes after you and me. We want to know why, mostly it's because his battle is against God. He knows he can't touch God, he can't hurt God, so he goes after those whom happen to be closest to the heart of God, those who are near and dear to him, and that's we who are the redeemed of the Lord. We left off at verse 19 where the angelic messenger is encouraging, comforting, and strengthening Daniel while at the same time preparing him for what he is about to hear. So let's pick it up at verse 20. It says, So he said, referring to the angelic messenger, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Heaven's messenger asks Daniel a question. Do you know why I've come? And before Daniel even has a chance to respond, the angel gives the answer, lets him know why he's there. says, I've come, Daniel, to see you. And before Daniel could respond, the angel stated that he would soon return to fight against the demon prince of Persia. Once again, reflecting and speaking to that battle that rages in the unseen spiritual realm. That is taking place even now as we speak. He says, as soon as I'm done here, as soon as I've delivered my message to you, I'm going to go back and pick up the fight, engage this demon prince of Persia. And then sometime later, after that empire is done away with and the Grecian empire rises, I'm going to pick it up there and go against the demon of Greece, the demon prince of Greece and that empire. He would have to fight against that that demon there. It would take nothing less, church, than the powerful angels of God stopping the demonic forces of Satan to restrain and control evil on earth. And if you've been thinking, wow, can it get any worse? The answer is, oh, yeah. (laughs) In fact, we need to be thankful and mindful of what we already are covering here this morning. Because of God's messengers, his angels, Gabriel, Michael, and whoever else is involved. They are actually indeed because of the righteousness of God and the angels that minister for him are holding back and restraining what could be on the earth. And we must be very, very thankful for that. What was the reason for the conflict? Well, we've been discovering the issue was the restoration of the believing remnant of the Jewish people who actually, in believing God's word, left Babylon when given permission, went back to their homeland, Israel, to rebuild the temple. The enemy doesn't want that happening, which is why Gabriel got hung up for 21 days in that battle. This development, why doesn't the enemy want it happening? Because this development, them returning back to Israel, picking up where they left off in that sense, could lead, would lead, as you and I know, to the ultimate appearance of the Son of God coming to the world as Messiah. Satan and all his evil forces were determined to prevent, as we talked about in chapter 10, the answer coming to Daniel. His plan would not succeed here. Aren't you glad for that? (laughs) He's trying, but it will not succeed no more than it did in times past. Thank Moses. Remember that? When the enemy tried to to put out, the the Pharaoh says, let's kill every Jewish male two years and, and under. What was that all about? Nor would it 50 years from this point in time during the reign of a, persian king named xerxes we'll talk about him more in a little bit during the time of esther some of you are familiar with that story when a guy named haman through deception was literally given permission to exterminate and get rid of completely the jewish race but he failed there too didn't he before the angel left daniel He revealed to him the events that are recorded as we just read here in the book of truth. This is interesting. What is this book of truth? Well, evidently there's a book in heaven that covers God's plan for world history. What does that just tell us? That God has a predetermined plan, once again reminding us he is sovereign and in control. Yeah. And so this book covers world history. And of course, as most of us are aware, and we talk about it here, the centerpiece of this world history being the Jewish people, Israel. And further details about that centerpiece plan for Israel, as it involves the world as well, is given in chapters 11 and 12 we are also told that Michael's special assignment apparently was to assist and protect the nation of Israel. How cool is that, right? It appears also here that Gabriel and Michael help and support one another in the conflicts that take place in the spirit realm. A great spiritual war is being fought by the angels of God against the demons of Satan who were locked in constant fight in order to influence the behavior of people and nations. We saw a glimpse of this spiritual warfare in chapter 10. As we noted, the objective of the demonic forces was to stop, and I've already basically said this, and I want to repeat it again, Daniel's prayer preventing it from being answered, preventing Israel from fulfilling their God-given purpose to be the channel through whom God would send his inspired word, amen, and Messiah to the world. Obviously, Satan would not want this to happen, which is why he had been looking for the one who was said to come and crush him, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In chapter 11, verse 2, we come to the message Gabriel brought Daniel. After Daniel fought in prayer for 21 days, after the angel Gabriel had been engaged in battle for 21 days, he's freed up because of Michael's help. He comes, brings the message. It's a bird's eye view prophetically for Daniel and historically for us of the events that would happen in a place we know as the Middle East, okay? In chapter 10, the vision was introduced. Now its contents are revealed, a history of key events leading up to the end. And let me tell you this, guys, and as we're going to see here in a little bit, we're going to cover a lot of history It's going to feel a little bit like a history lesson, but as we're working through this today, I want you to keep in mind that God is the one who put this all into play, predicted it through his prophets, prophesied it long before it ever happened. And they all got fulfilled. Folks, please hear me in minute detail as we're going to see. Okay. Verse two of chapter 11 it says now then i tell you the truth well that's good since he's sharing from the book of truths right <laughs> three more kings will arise in persia and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others when he has gained power by his wealth he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of greece then a mighty king will arise who will rule great with great power and do as he pleases. So in verse 2, the amazing prophecy predicted the rise of rulers and kingdoms and wars that would be fought long before they ever happened. As each ruler would come onto the scene, sweep across the, the scene of world history, they and their people, thinking that they were large and in charge. And really, all they were doing was proving God to be true at his word. At this point in Daniel's life, the Persians are in power. If you remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the visions that Daniel had received in chapter 7 and chapter 8, once again, we're seeing in this surfacing, it would be the Babylonians, and then it'd be the Medes and Persians, and then the Greeks, right? And then that would be followed by the Romans. And so at this point, it's the Persians who are in power. And the angel says, three more Persian kings will come. Three kings are going to come and go, and they did, exactly as God said. He says, but there would be a fourth, and there was. Fourth who will be richer, the Bible says, than all the others, and he will take his wealth and use it to stir up the entire kingdom against Greece, who would be the third empire to come on the scene. And once again, that is exactly what happened. The fourth king, his name was Xerxes, the first, also known as Ahasuerus, the same guy who we're familiar with in the book of Esther. And he was determined to wipe out Greece. With his vast wealth, he spent four years building an army of two and a half million men. He then marched them into the region of Greece and engaged the Grecians in battle. Historians tell us it is said that the battle was the bloodiest battle in world history as the Greeks fought against Xerxes and his two and a half million men. And although the Greeks lost the battle, Xerxes' army was decimated. For the next 150 plus years, the Greeks just sort of waited and waited for their moment for revenge. Verses 3 and 4, we just saw this, you know, then a mighty king would rise who would rule with great power and do as he pleases, verse 4, and after he has risen, his empire will be broken up, parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. We've talked about this person in the past already, haven't we? Sure enough, 150 years later, a mighty king did arise in Greece. His name, Alexander. He took all of that anger and revenge that had been pent up within the Greek people, the Grecian people, and began his hunger to conquer. Conquer he did, as we all know, right? But I want you to notice the statement It says, and he'll do as he pleases. This indicates his arrogance and his pride and his exalting himself, which he did. Driven by the lust for power, and it was finally in 334 BC when he launched his retaliatory, retaliatory, <laughs> however you say that, he retaliated. How's that? Yes. Hey, Against the Persian Empire. It, and four years later, he had completely overcome them. Once again, we see the effects of the evil one at work. And this correspond, corresponds with chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. As we said back in chapter 8, by the time he was 33, he had conquered the then known world. Didn't get to enjoy it very long. Died of pneumonia at 33. 33. And then his kingdom was parceled out with, by four of his generals. He did have two sons. They were murdered, so they weren't able to pick it up. Four generals took over. Okay? And now the story, as the story unfolds here in chapter 11, the focus turns towards two of the four areas taken over by two of the four generals. Okay? That's where we're going here with this, and there's reason for it. The two generals was the general known as the Seleucid family and the Ptolemies. Those are the two generals, the two families that took two, that took two of the four regions and areas of Alexander's empire. The Seleucids were in Syria, directly north of Israel. The Ptolemies were in Egypt, directly south of Israel. Now, why are these two kingdoms of the four singled out? One quick glance at a map, and you have your answer. Because between the two empires, sandwiched between the two, sat little nation called Israel. Okay? Pretty interesting. The these were the two divisions of the Grecian Empire that concerned the Jewish people and God's plan of redemption for the world. Once again, keep in mind the unseen realm, the spiritual battle taking place, and what the enemy does not want to see happen and take place with regards to God's plan for redemption for you and me and all who would come to Jesus. And so why is this the problem? And I've just said it because of the Grecian nations that are basically have Israel surrounded. They're above them, below them. Syria was also, the Seleucids also were in Babylon. So they're, they're kind of like surrounded by these empires. Historically now, there was a time of Egyptian dominance. means the Ptolemites dominated. Verses 6 through 12 share that. And then after that, there was a time when the Seleucid Empire, the Syrian dominance took place, verses 13 on through 35, talk about that. Now look at verse 5 with me. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance. But she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last In those days, she will be betrayed together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. At one point, what we're being told here is rather than fight the Syrians, the Ptolemy who's in charge at this point in time, Ptolemy II, who interestingly, just a side note, interestingly, according to tradition, is the one who instigated the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, which we know as the Septuagint, okay? Anyway, this guy, he proposed that they form an alliance. Hey, this beating up on one another isn't getting it done, man. Let's just, let's, let's form the alliance together, right? He says, I've got a daughter. Propose that the alliance, you know, I have a daughter, and he said to the II of Syria... Marry her and that'll make us one big happy family just like Alexander wanted. The agreement between the two rulers involved that the daughter of Ptolemy, her name Berenice, was to marry the Syrian king Antiochus II, the king of the north, and that their son would eventually become the ruler of Syria in the Seleucid Empire. So you see what he's trying to do that son then would have blood running in his veins from both kingdoms. Well, initially, Antiochus said, Well, I can't do that. I'm already married. (laughs) To which Ptolemy basically said, No problem, just dump her. (laughs) And no surprise to us, Antiochus agreed. (laughs) The wedding took place. But soon after that, Ptolemy died. And Antiochus decided he wanted his first wife back. And she came back. But not because there was love and forgiveness in her heart. <laughs> she came back and murdered that guy by stabbing him in the back. And then murdered the daughter, Bernice, and their child. Yeah, nice lady, right? Verse 7, one from her family line, referring to Berenice who just got murdered, one from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also siege their gods their metal images and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south but will retreat to his own country. Enraged by what had happened to his sister, Ptolemy's son, Ptolemy now the third, puts together an army marched through Israel and beat up on the Syrians. And while he was there, he recovered 2,500 idol gods that the Syrians had stolen <laughs> when one of their invasions in Egypt years earlier. This retaliatory invasion of the North On the south that's mentioned in verse 9 must not have been much. It appears that they went in there when there was a quick retreat back to their own country. Now verse 10 is important because something very significant takes place in verse 10. His sons will appear for war, will prepare for war and assemble a great army which will sweep on like in an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as. As his fortress. In response to the Egypt, Egyptian invasion, Antiochus III now launched a counterattack against Egypt, the Ptolemies in the south. And in the process, here's where it gets important and significant in the process of that invasion, he claimed Israel as part of his own empire. Yeah. This is significant because it was setting up the setting the stage for the madman, known as Antiochus Epiphanes, who would soon, down the road, be coming on the scene. Verse eleven. Then the king of the south will march out in in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride. And will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first. And after several years, he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south. Those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success." In response to what we saw in verse 10, Ptolemy the fourth from the south launched a counterattack against the north. Are you totally confused with all of this? Yeah. I remember when I first read it before I did any study and research, I was like, oh my goodness, what is all that? You know? When the battle ended, Ptolemy had won a great victory over the Syrians. Because of his pride, we are told, His victory and dominance didn't last very long. Back and forth the conflicts went. Now centering in Israel. Finally, another Antiochus came on the scene and was determined to solve the problem once and for all. So what does he do? He persuades the Greeks to join him in invading Egypt once again. At this point, another in the chapter, another significant development takes place. No longer are the Ptolemies dominant now. But verses 13 through 35, as we move into that section here of this chapter, describe the rise of power and dominance of the Seleucid Empire who are in the north. Verse 14 is interesting because it is a reference to, to Jews. When it refers to talking memory, the angel is talking to Daniel, he says, your people, remain, meaning Jews. It's a reference to Jews who actually aided Antiochus in their fight against Egypt. This would prove to be a huge mistake. Verse 15. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps, and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Remember now, Ptolemais losing their dominance, Seleucids taking charge. They will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land, a reference to Israel. And will have the power to destroy it. The besiege that we just read about in verse 15 took place historically at a city called Sidon, giving Antiochus complete control of not only the south, but Israel as well. And when he entered Jerusalem, check this out, folks, when he entered Jerusalem in 198 BC, he received a warm welcome. By the Jewish people, for most looked upon him as a deliverer and benefactor. They're going to be doing something similar, even what is out in our future, still, won't they? As history repeats itself. Little did the Jewish people realize that within 23 years of that particular time, things, the change in government, would lead to one of the most horrible periods in their history verse 17 he will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south and he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom we this is deja vu right mm-hmm. only it's the other kingdom doing it now mm-hmm. and he will give him a daughter in marriage But check this out, in order to overthrow the kingdom, there's sneaky motive here, right? But his plans will not succeed or help him. As tensions began to ease, maybe a little bit of peace and not as much conflict taking place, Antiochus, the Seleucid of Syria, said to the house of Ptolemy in Egypt, Hey, guys. You know what? I've got a beautiful daughter. And you have a son. I'll ship my daughter down to you at Egypt. She can hang out there and wait for your son to grow up because he's younger. (laughs) And then they can be married. And we'll be in an alliance. Did you notice I made emphasis already in order to overthrow the kingdom. What's he really after? Was to place his daughter inside the palace of the Ptolemies. Why? To serve as his spy. As far as evil scheming goes, not a bad idea, right? (laughs) Only problem was the daughter literally actually fell in love with the Ptolemy's son and refused to spy <laughs> on the Ptolemies. Oh, and, and by the way, the daughter's name, Cleopatra. Verse 18. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them. But a commander... Will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. Antiochus then, thinking, Well, I've got to go beat up on somebody, (laughs) decides he's going to go and take his anger out on the Greeks, the people who had helped them earlier. (laughs) He turns his face toward the Greek isles, determined to conquer them. But there was a problem. He ran into that fourth emerging empire that we've already been told about, the Roman Empire. He ran into them there, and he's resisted, and he has stopped, and he's unable to fulfill his plan to conquer. Okay? However, in all of that, as we're going to see, There's a problem. Look at verse 19 and 20 with me. After this, he will turn back toward the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. So he turns back to his own land and he gets back there. He was literally killed by an angry mob in a, the temple of one of his gods. The problem again was, as we just sort of are seeing here, that with all of his military ventures, he had created a huge, huge financial deficit. So in 187 BC, the son and successor of Antigus, the third who was known as Seleucus the announced his solution to the problem I'm gonna send out 1,000 tax collectors and they're gonna tax you and collect from you so that we can maintain and take care of this deficit but that king got killed <laughs> in the process. And history tells us the person who killed him was the one whom he appointed to be his head guy over the tax collecting. History tells us that what he did, because it says that he would not be hurt in battle or anything like that, he got poisoned. (laughs) This guy poisoned him and then he took over and was in charge. (laughs) And so out of these two groups of people, one individual Emerges. We've looked at him and come across him already. Antiochus Epiphanes. A very important person prophetically, for as we have previously discussed, he is a picture, a foreshadowing of one who is even more dreadful, who is still yet to come, who might, for all we know, be alive today somewhere in the world. The Antichrist. This chapter is unique in the Old Testament with its 6th century B.C. view of stuff that actually happened in 2nd century B.C. (laughs) God was foretelling what was going to take place long before it ever took place, making it an appropriate place here for us to note the Lord's knowledge of the future And together with his sovereign rule over human kingdoms should give us boatloads, folks, of confidence that while there is a spiritual war raging, while there is one out there who longs to destroy you and take you down with him, our God is sovereign and in control. The Houston Chronicle shared a story a few years back about a 21-year-old guy who took a trip down to Arizona, and while he was there, he caught a rattlesnake and then got the brilliant idea that he was going to take it home and turn it into a pet. Sometime later, he had some friends over wanting to be cute. He picked up that snake by the back of its head and kissed it. And his friends said, what are you doing? That's crazy. He goes, oh, it's no big deal. I do it all the time. Took that snake and kissed it again. Only this time, the snake kissed him back. Bit him on the upper lip. He lost consciousness, went limp, eyes rolled back in his head, and was life-flighted to a hospital. Although he survived the ordeal, here's why I share that story. His actions illustrate a much greater spiritual problem. Too often... We play with temptation as if it was a pet, as if it was something that we could control. We are wrong on both counts. Daniel's vision of the spiritual warfare that takes place here on earth and in the heavenlies is a great reminder for us on that. Would you agree? The enemy knows he is defeated. And as I've already said, he wants to take you down with him. Temptation, church, is real. And there's someone who's influencing you, making you think that, hey, no one's going to get hurt. This isn't going to make a difference in any way, shape, or form. No one will know. And on and on, the lies and the excuses go. But, folks, it's coming from a warfare. And there's people that have been put in place not only to destroy you, but God has got his angels in place to protect you. Don't work against them. Work with them. Don't yield to the temptation. It's not a game, not something to play with. It's real, it's a war, it's a battle that's trying to take you out. Temptation, folks, is like a rattlesnake. It's a spiritual snake, more deadly than he wants you to ever, ever know. Let this truth keep you ever drawing near to him, to our God, and continually engage in spiritual battle, knowing that we are victorious through Christ. It is tempting to look to political leaders in our day for answers and to rely upon them far too heavily. But these rulers and these kingdoms... They come and go, don't they? But the good news is our God, our King, is here to stay. And no one will be knocking him off of his (laughs) throne. May we trust, rely, and look to him only. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness your grace and your mercy. We thank you, God, for all the reminders and the depth that we have been given, Lord, in terms of truth from the book of Daniel. And, Lord, we have seen once again, we've been reminded once again of your sovereignty and how you are in control. And all these events that have, were predetermined and predicted to take place, hundreds of years before they ever happened happened in minute detail. What does that say to us? God, it says that we can trust you. You've got this. And those things that do be fulfilled we know will. And may we God just be our do our part and staying in the battle engaging in that conflict and not fighting against those who are for us but joining with them in fighting against those who are against us no longer yielding to temptation thinking that it's not a big deal it is and so god may we just find ourselves more and more faithful to you living for you displaying you in greater ways Encourage us, strengthen us today and in the days to come. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up, lift up my heart.